Um, I was, um, sorry, that's a terrible way to start. I am going to do this. Um, so I was trying to work out the best way that I could start this talk, and I was thinking, hey, you know what, everyone knows about really awesome cool dinosaurs, but not very many people know about really cool mammals, so maybe I could start off with Andrusarchus, a pretty terrifying, massive, carnivorous mammal, or perhaps I could talk a little bit about this chap, one of the most ferocious pigs that ever evolved, which you probably wouldn't want to meet. Or maybe I could talk about Indicotherium, which is the tallest terrestrial mammal ever to have evolved, standing at about six metres tall. I could have started with these, but then I thought, you know what, the best thing I can show is this, which is a mammal, a bear, eating a birdhouse, a house for dinosaurs. <laughs> so, where, I mean, at the moment it feels that it's kind of me against you. And I do want to say that I am on your side, okay? I do like dinosaurs. They're okay. They're, they're cute. They're, you know, very tall. They're exciting-looking chaps. And this actually was the poster that was in my brother's room when I was growing up. Um, and I used to go into his room and I saw this poster and I was like, wow, look at these guys. They're amazing. I mean, this chap here has bitten this guy's head straight off. That's the best <laughs> And yet, he's still standing. <laughs> and so dinosaurs were obviously very, very important to me as I was growing up, and I collected these fantastic uh, magazines that my parents saw every single week for me. We ended up buying, I think it was 105 chapters of these. Um, and uh, yeah, this is my ridiculous dinosaurs, exclamation mark, uh, encyclopedia I still have in my home. And obviously, in uh, 1993, um, a little film came out which um, obviously a lot of you know about, and just to show that I am still on your side, I am wearing my Jurassic Park t-shirt, which was bought for me by my mum in 1993. So this is just to show that when your parents buy you clothes and they say, don't worry, you're going to grow into them, you will. It may take 20 years, but this is an awesome t-shirt. So the idea for this talk uh, came out of a kid's activity book that I've been working on recently, called Triassic Terrors. Um, it's published by uh, Flying Eye Books. It's going to be coming out in June this year. And when we were working on it, well, firstly, the, the, the Triassic period was a really interesting time. This is when dinosaurs were just beginning to evolve, right? So the Jurassic period, that was really sort of like the, the, the start of the age of the dinosaurs. But during the Triassic period, there were really strange funky animals that perhaps no one really knew about as much, or no one knows about as much when you go to museums and so on. So actually, the chap on the front cover here is not a dinosaur. And yet this was probably the most uh, feared and fearsome predator that was making its rounds during the Triassic period. So, something I want to begin with, and I'm so terribly sorry to be showing a graph this early in the morning. I hate showing graphs in academic talks, let alone talks for you know, members of the public at 5 past 10 in the morning. But we're all intelligent, and I think we can understand this. Basically, we have time going across in this direction, okay? So, here's the Cambrian period, where the first metazoans, or first, you know, really large animals began to evolve. And around about here, we have the Triassic period, the Jurassic and the Cretaceous. Now these bars, what do these bars mean? Well, if we twist this around, we can see, now this is horrible. This, uh, these are the only words that I have in my presentation, okay? But they're important words. So these represent the percent of genera, okay? So the kinds of animals that were present in each of these time intervals that don't occur in next. So basically, what that means is the taller these bars, the more animals went extinct. They were around in the period afterwards. Now this means that looking at these bars, we can see when mass extinctions happen. Now mass extinctions are these huge catastrophic events. Now extinctions generally happen all the time. Extinction is a very important aspect, a really important process in the history of life. It means that things that were fantastically successful sort of give way to other things which can then fill in the gaps and fill in these ecological niches. And so the biggest spike we see, hello, is around here. So this is giving out, that's a bad sign. The Permian period, the end of the Permian. And the end Permian was one of the largest mass extinctions. So this was when around 70% of terrestrial vertebrate families became extinct. This is an enormous event, and something like, well, perhaps 90% of marine species also went extinct. Sorry, excuse me, it's quite early in the morning, I just need to fill in the So before the Mesozoic period, during the Permian period, 
we had these huge, terrifying predators. And again, this is not a dinosaur. Now, does anybody know what kind of an animal this is? Just so I can engage the audience. Anybody? Yes? Well, interesting. So, it's actually more closely related to mammals than it is reptiles. And that's because it's a kind of animal called a synapsid. Now, synapsids have only one hole behind their eye socket, whereas dinosaurs were diapsids, and that means they have two holes behind their eye socket. That means that dinosaurs were reptiles, whereas this thing was more closely related to the mammal-like reptiles. So these things, although they were fantastically successful, they went extinct at the end of the Permian period. Well, a few survived just into the start of the Mesozoic, but these guys' relatives then sort of evolved into the mammal-like reptiles and the mammals that we have around us today. So this thing was a Gorgonopsian. Oh, God, sorry, excuse me. It was a Gorgonopsian, and uh, it's preying on a fairly unfortunate chap here. And yet, people just don't really seem to know about these guys, which is a real shame, because this photograph, I took this yesterday, and this was in the uh, University Museum of Zoology right here in Cambridge, where I work. And this is now, I really, really hope that this point is going to work, because it's a little bit difficult to try and see what's going on here. So here is the skull of a Lystrosaurus, and this is the underneath of a skull of one of those Gorgonopsians. And so here, we have one of those fangs that you saw, here is one of those fangs. So this thing was fossilised with its mouth in the back of another animal's head. So pretty amazing fossil. And it's sort of hidden away, sort of in the depths of the zoology museum, but you can find it. You go into sort of like the teaching demonstration area, try and hunt it out. And this was something, this ferocious predator existed before the dinosaurs. However, there was a mass extinction at the end of the Permian period, and that allowed dinosaurs to then get in and sort of occupy those ecological niches where those mammal-like reptiles, or things that predated them, were hunting and were making their living. So, we have our very first dinosaurs. But these aren't dinosaurs. These are actually pseudosuchians. Sometimes they're called chloritatans. Now, they are closely related to dinosaurs, but they're actually more closely related to crocodiles, which you can kind of see looking at uh, this boy here on uh, the right-hand side. So these things were incredibly successful during the Triassic period, and when I showed you the front cover of Triassic Terrors, one of those animals was one of these pseudosuchians. So during the Triassic period, it wasn't dinosaurs that were fantastically successful. It was actually these, these pseudosuchians, things that would eventually become crocodiles and alligators. But these guys were herbivorous, some of them had sails on their backs, they were really gnarly guys. But no one knows about them because everybody cares about dinosaurs. However, at the end of the Triassic period, and I'm sorry to show you this graph just one more time, we can see, so that uh, right at the top of the TR, that's the tri Triassic period, and we can see that one of those spikes, one of those blue spikes, pops up here again. That means that there was another mass extinction. Unfortunately, this meant that it was the end of the reign of the Pseudosuchians, those amazingly diverse crocodilian kind of animals, and that's when dinosaurs really came into their own. And we start seeing an enormous amount of diversity in the amount of dinosaurs that suddenly appear. So this is during the Jurassic Cretaceous period, and this is what we call a, um, um, a phylogenetic diagram. Okay? So every single one of these lines represents, uh, I believe it's a, a genus? Yeah, I think it's a genus. So types of dinosaurs. Okay? So there were very, very many type of different types of dinosaurs. There were ornithischians, um, sauropodomorpha. So these were guys that turned into the really long-necked, long-legged, long-tailed dinosaurs. You know, they were doing pretty well. They were doing, you know, fantastically for themselves, really, during the Mesozoic period. I mean, look at this diversity. Look at the different kinds of dinosaurs they were. I mean, that's pretty great, right? Although this diagram's lying. The eagle-eyed amongst you might have seen that some of these guys aren't actually dinosaurs. So, um, you know, this chap here, he's actually a synapsid. So Dimorphodon, which maybe some of you guys know, the chap with a sail on his back, He's actually another one of these guys that's more closely related to mammals than he was to dinosaurs or crocodiles. And of course, we know that uh, pterodactyls here and plesiosaurs at the top, these weren't dinosaurs either. These were other, other groups of ancient reptiles, and some of them managed to sort of exist in marine environments or fly through the sky. Looking at this, what I said before about how diverse dinosaurs managed to become, actually, the differences in shapes and sizes that we see in dinosaurs 
wasn't that great. I'm going to try and convince you here, because if we look, okay, sure, there's, you know, some don't, okay, they're, they're bipedal, that's fantastic, this chap has a little horn on the back. Anybody know what this guy is? Parasaurolophus. Good work. Uh, we have the really long neck dinosaurs. Anybody know what this guy is? Yeah? It's, it's almost like a diplodocus, but it's taller than it is long. What do you think? It's a brachiosaurus. You got it. But to be honest, there's kind of these four-legged, tall, long-necked dinosaurs. There are these theropod dinosaurs, the two-legged ones. I think mammals are more diverse than this. And just to sort of show this, here's, here's just a few mammals. We've got some seals, we've got some giraffes, we've got some cheetahs, here's a tiger. These are very, very different looking animals. They're very diverse. What we call it, uh, there's, there's a large amount of disparity in shapes and sizes. And just to drive this home, I'm going to just take a group of mammals that we call the Afrotheria. So this is a super order of animals. Now, everything that I'm about to show you are more closely related to each other than to any other kind of mammal, okay? So, the elephant. The elephant is incredibly closely related to this chap. Anybody know what this guy is? Yeah? It's not an armadillo, it's, uh, yeah? It's not an anteater. Anybody know the guess? Yeah? It's an aardvark, very ever. It's very, very similar to an anteater, it's very, very similar to an armadillo, and yet it's not actually very closely related to them. It's more closely related to elephants. So that's a huge difference in the kind of body plan that we're seeing. But okay, you know, it's still kind of looking a little bit like an elephant. This chap, who's this? Yeah? It's a dugong. Yeah, exactly. So dugongs and manatees are fantastically closely related. And these are still part of the Afrotheria. Now, I don't know, I, this, this looks kind of a lot cooler than any dinosaur you can show me. He's completely lost his hind legs. He's created this sort of paddle shape behind him, and he's, he's uh, making his entire living underneath the water. And that's very, very neat. And he's kind of uh, changed his front limbs here into flippers. And again, it's more closely related to an elephant than it is, say, a seal or anything like this. So still remaining within this uh, super order, the Afrotheria, where have we got now? Can anybody tell me what this is? This would be amazing if you guys do know what this is. Um, my friends at the back aren't allowed to ask. Because they're zoologists, so they know it. Yeah. Yes, it's a Hyrax. Well done. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so, Hyraxes are really peculiar chaps. They look a lot like rodents. And in fact, their teeth are very, very similar to rodents. And yet, this is probably the closest living uh, cousin of elephants that we have today. And in the past, they were incredibly diverse. I mean, this is just a rock hyrax, but uh, in the past, there were really, really large hyraxes, which have been fantastically named Titanohyrax, uh, which were probably sort of like this big off the ground. Um, and they have various different diets. And again, this is just to show you how diverse this one super order is. And sorry, I'm, I'm kind of belaboring this point, but I am going to continue. This guy, come on, someone's got to know what this guy is. And uh, the, the clue is in the name that's very closely related to elephants. And it looks a little bit like a shrew, so what could it be called? Uh-huh. Bingo, it's an elephant shrew. Actually, that's kind of like the, uh, the name that everybody used to like calling them, but now uh, people call them sengis. So if ever you're in a museum or someone's talking to you about elephant shrews, then you can call them sengis. Uh, and this chap is obviously quite useful. They're incredibly fast. They're super duper fast. And again, more closely related to elephants than they are shrews, just within this one family, we find enormous amounts of diversity. Anybody? What do we think this is? I will allow one zoologist to answer this if no one else uh, may speak knows the answer. What do we think it is? Is it a golden mole? It's a golden mole. But, oh, sorry, I didn't see your hand. So this is, again, more closely related to elephants and aardvarks and hyraxes than to the European mole. And yet it's convergently come up with this brilliant evolutionary answer to the question, how can I make my living? Okay, I'm going to swim under the ground. Now, there are some differences between this guy and European moles, um, such as the way it digs. European moles dig like this. Whereas golden moles dig like this. So they, they, they do doggy paddle through sand. Um, and they are completely blind. So their skin is like massively covering their eyes. And I don't know, I, I, I doubt that there's a completely blind dinosaur on the fossil record, but hopefully we're going to be talking about this in a little while. 
And lastly, I just want to show you that again in this same family we have this boy. And does anybody know what this guy is? What do you think? Now, it's actually not a hedgehog. It's not even closely related to hedgehogs. What do you think? It's a tenrex. Well done. So tenrex are hands down my favourite animals. They have again convergently, so they come up with the same answer, the same question of, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty small, I've got to look after myself, I'm going to grow spikes out of my back. This lives in Africa, it's more closely related to an elephant, it's not at all related to a hedgehog. And this is by far my favourite tenrex, which is the lowland street tenrex. It lives just in Madagascar. Um, it looks a bit like a cross between a hedgehog and a bee. Um, <laughs> and it does something incredible with its spines on its back. It does something called stridulation. Now, stridulation is a way that you can make very, very big noises with very, very small structures. So if you imagine you're getting a comb, a hair comb, and you get a pen, perhaps, and you just... Uh, great against that comb with that pen, you know that noise that you get? That's stridulation. And this is what these guys do with those spikes on their back. They kind of rub them against each other and they click them uh, against each other, and that creates a noise and they actually communicate with each other. And there's actually perhaps some evidence that they echolocate as well. Um, this is maybe something we could talk about. So, mammals are pretty diverse. That was just one super order of mammals. And we have elephants, we have things that eat ants, we have things that look like hedgehogs, things that look like moles. And this is all just in one little family. Which I think is a lot more diverse than the sorts of dinosaurs that you see. You know, stegosaurs, hadrosaurs, tyrannosaurus rex, diplodocus. That shape is kind of all the shapes you're going to see if you go to a museum. I'm sorry, that was a bit of an attack on dinosaurs, but, you know, mammals are way cool. Now, going back to this poster that I looked at whenever I went into my brother's room, there was something that always used to make me think, and I was like, well, you know, this guy, yeah, okay, he's showing off, he's fighting the entire head off. But these chaps down here, now, I'm sorry, the resolution isn't fantastic. You know, they're not having a great time, are they? They're kind of sneaking around in the undergrowth. Now, this is a guy called Megazostrodon. Uh, there are some other sort of Mesozoic mammals that we all, well, that maybe we all know about. Does anybody actually know the name of any Mesozoic mammals, mammals that lived during the time of the dinosaurs? Just so I can judge whether people know about any of them, sort of lived during this period, in the shadow of the dinosaurs, as it were. Anybody can name any? It's a bad sign, isn't it? Okay, so Megazostrodon. What was this guy like? Well, the easiest way that we can understand what this chap was like is to look at footage of modern-day shrews. Now, when you read in uh, textbooks, you'll hear people saying, okay, they were shrew-like animals, they were small, they were nocturnal, they were very scared of all the dinosaurs. And oh, they're so cute, they're so cute. Only they're not! This is a pretty ferocious battle happening right now. And I'd like to point out that everything I'm going to be talking about, why mammals became so fantastically successful and managed to find themselves in all the different niches that we now find them in, everything, all the clues to do with why they succeeded, <laughs> calm down guys, um, all of these clues can be found just within an animal like this, in a very basal, kind of small, vanilla sort of manner. So let's stop these guys fighting. Now, at the start of that footage, we saw that shrew nibbling through a bit of a moth. Now, we know that the first mammals, the first true mammals that evolved during the Mesozoic period, they were probably insectivorous. Uh, in fact, uh, we call um, a lot of mammals insectivores. That's a way that we kind of group them together, although that's a bit of a slippery term. Actually, it's changing a little bit now, like everything in zoology. However, there were a lot of insects around during that period. And insects are fantastic food. They're, they're, they're full of energy, and uh, getting at that energy is very, very important. And so looking at the way reptiles use their mouths, use their jaws, and understanding how different that is to the way mammals use their jaws and use their mouths, we can kind of get an understanding about how mammals get more energy from their food than reptiles do. So for the next little while, I'm going to be talking about teeth, I'm going to be talking about mammals, I'm going to be talking about yours, but that's fine. I love to eat, so why don't we talk about it? Now this guy is a reptile. And how do reptiles close their mouths? Well, they have very, very strong musculature in their jaws, in their skulls. But generally, when they're closing their mouth, they're just snapping, okay? They're just snapping in this one plane. 
Now that's fine, that's great. You know, if you're if, if you're tuning through something, that's okay. You know, you've got this enormous amount of musculature, you just clamp down and away you go. And in fact, some studies have recently shown that dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex here probably had some of the strongest jaw musculature ever to have evolved. So, you know, fantastic. You could you know, chew through a car if you wanted to. If they existed. We're <laughs> So that is good. Well done, dinosaurs. But mammals can do this. <laughs> so what's going on here? Why is this picture so interesting? Yeah? Perfect answer. He's chewing. Now, chewing is only able... Uh, sorry, mammals are the only things that are able to chew. Okay? So we can move our mammals, and you can all do this, from the and reptiles can't do this. They can only sort of snap their jaws like that. Now, why is that so important? Well, the kind of teeth that we have, well, the kind of teeth that anything has, if you just clamp down, you can only sort of do this with your teeth. Whereas, if you can chew, yeah, you can bring your teeth down like this, but you can also rub them side to side. Now, that's really, really important if you're chewing through something like an insect, because that means that you can masticate now, that means that you can break down all these food structures and you can get into that energy and you can really destroy those insects. So that, chewing, is one of the most important things that early mammals could do. And that's actually to do with the structure of their jaw joints. Now, I won't go into this too much because it gets terribly complicated, but all I will say is that reptiles, the bones that are in their jaw joints right here, are actually different bones from the bones that you find in the jaw joint of mammals. And the bones that are in the jaw joint of reptiles became the, well, two of the middle ear ossicles. So you know we have the malleus, the atus, and the stapes. The malleus and the atus are just mammalian, and they're actually from bones that in reptiles form part of the jaw joint. That's a little bit technical, so we'll just uh, move on to the next thing. Okie dokie, look at this guy. What are we looking at here? So, reptiles, dinosaurs, the kinds of teeth that they have are very, very similar all the way through the jaw. So if you look at a Tyrannosaurus rex skull, for instance, you'll see that the teeth right at the front of the uh, mouth are very, very similar to the teeth that you find right at the back of the mouth. They're just spikes, they're just knives, right? Which, okay, is pretty terrifying. But this chap here, these teeth are very, very different to these teeth, are very, very different to these teeth. Now we have different kinds of teeth. Can anybody tell me some of the teeth that we have in our head? Yeah? Molars. Whereabouts are the molars? They're right in the back here. Yeah? Canines. Canines. So these are the canines that we can see here. Yeah? Anybody? Yeah? Incisors. That's right. We've got these guys here. Yeah? And premolars. Well done, everybody. Fantastic stuff. Look at that. So different kinds of teeth is very, very important. Now we call this heterodoxy. Now hetero means different. And this means that you can kind of attack different kinds of food in different ways. If you need to slice through something, you can use your canine teeth. But if you need to crunch through something, you can use your molar teeth. And we know that very early on in the evolution of mammals, this heterodonty began to evolve. So again, teeth are very, very important. And also, you know, take care of your teeth. Now, the kinds of teeth that we find in mammals began to change quite a lot during their evolution and began to be fantastically well adapted to the kinds of diets that various different sorts of mammals are eating. So you'll see here that there's a massive, what we call, reduction in the amount of teeth. Now, this is a kind of cat. And if you, does anyone have a cat or a dog at home? Do you have to clean their teeth and pick up? Yeah, and then you sort of like, you know, brought their gums up and you've had a look. You'll notice, oh, you don't have a who knows. Um, but you'll notice they have this really crazy, insane sort of tooth here. Now that's called carnassial tooth, and that's only found in carnivora, which are dogs and cats. And the reason why that's such an amazing tool for really destroying different kinds of food is because it has very many different shearing sides to it. It has shearing structures. Now, shearing structures are really useful because in the same way that dinosaurs kind of just use these knives against each other, shearing structures act almost like a pair of scissors. And the more complicated your pair of scissors are, the more blades you have, and the better you can get at food. So I'm really trying to get at this thing at the moment that Mammals have fantastic teeth, which are incredibly well adapted to breaking down different kinds of food, and they can get into that amazing energy inside. And obviously, some mammals have taken teeth and they've just gone insane with them. I mean, what, what kind of a tooth is this? Does anybody know? What do you think? 
a tusk, but once upon a time, the tusk was actually a different kind of tooth. Does anybody know what kind of tooth that was? Yeah, what was it? Was it a what, sorry? You know, it was a canine. If we look back in the fossil record, we can actually see that this is a kind of canine that became uh, crazily adapted and then started uh, popping out the top of their head, and there we go. Um, so, yeah, these teeth are fantastically useful, and we find in different mammals that they've been used in different ways. So, what kind of tooth is this? Can anybody remember what this is? The front teeth, can anybody remember what these are called? Yeah? The incisors, yeah. And this is a kind of rodent. Now, we've got a rodent expert at the back of the room, so I'm not going to talk too much about them because I know that you're going to see that I'm going to make some mistakes. But, these incisor teeth are incredibly important for rodents, and if we take um, a section of, uh, of the jaw here, we can see why. Now, these are ever-growing, so our teeth just sort of have roots like this. But in rodents, they go all the way back, all the way back. And actually, they go a little bit further back. This is a very, very old illustration. So they're ever-growing. They never fall out. Actually, they only have enamel, which is the really, really important part of teeth, the really, really hard part of teeth. They only have enamel right at the front of their teeth here, which means that as they're biting through something, the soft part of the tooth here starts wearing away. And so we end up with these structures that when they start biting against each other, they're almost like chisels, which is why they can chisel through nuts and bark, and you can be a beaver or a rat. They're so fantastically useful for biting through all these different kinds of food. And that's why rodents are the most speciose that's a good word that I want you to remember and use at some point today. They're the most speciose uh, member of mammalia. Um, I forgot that I put that in. Um, so this is to remind me uh, to tell you about another aspect of teeth. It's all that teeth in mammals. Um, when I was... Why did I put this in? When I was um, about six years old, um, I had this really, really uh, amazing little device for my Game Boy. Um, and it was called a Solar Boy. It was so cool. Uh, it's a I could put my Game Boy just on the, uh, uh, my, my window mode, and it would be charged by solar energy. Um, and then I could play uh, Mario. Now, I was trying to take it out once and uh, managed to hit myself in the face, um, and um, three of my teeth uh, fell out, which was so great. Uh, so that's why I gave myself. Luckily, they were milk teeth. Um, and milk teeth are again a very, very important part of mammals because we only have two sets of teeth. Okay, we have milk teeth, and then after you hit yourself in the face with a game boy and they fall out, we have our permanent teeth. Now, our permanent teeth are the ones that stay with us for the whole of our lives. So we really do take massive good care of them. But that's really, really important if you're a mammal because that means that you only have these one set of teeth that kind of last for your whole life. And that means that the sort of structures that they are can be very, very precise, so that they fit into the teeth in your bottom jaw very, very tightly. And we call that occlusion. And so this is another way that mammal teeth are incredibly well adapted to being these fantastic structures that fit very, very tightly together. So again, we can break down various things that we're eating and do a really good job at getting energy out of our food. That's why my Game Boy was up there. And so this is one of the last ones I've checked. Does anybody know uh, what this is? What do you think? Yeah? Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely fine. Now, what am I showing here? We've already talked about different kinds of teeth. We've, so we talked about diphyodontine, uh, which is having two different sets of teeth. Now, there's something else that you can see now. It's opened its mouth, which makes mammals fantastically awesome. What do you think? The tongue is cool, but the tongue's also fine. The tongue is cool, um, but it's also found in dinosaurs and reptiles alike. The thing I want you to see is this here. Now, this is the palate. We don't usually think about the palate being terribly awesome, but it's incredibly important for the evolution of mammals. Now, reptiles, when they breathe, they have external nostrils and they have internal nostrils, so where the air from the outside goes into their mouth. And that's the point. The air from the outside goes into their mouth. Whereas when we breathe in, and you can all do this now, if you breathe in through your nose, you can feel that the back of your throat goes a little bit cold. And that's because behind our palate, here, our external nostrils are really, really far back. And why is that important? Well, that means that you can have something in your mouth, say you can be drinking milk, for instance, and you can still breathe. Now, reptiles, when they're eating something, they have to stop breathing. 
they can't breathe and eat at the same time. Now that's really, really important during the evolution of mammals because that means that they can suckle and they can sort of uh, drink their mother's milk, which again is something very, very cool that mammals have because this is something to do with parenting in that when you're born, you then have a mother that gives you food. And it turns out you can still breathe whilst having your face full of milk. So great, well done mammals, that's an amazing, another fantastic adaptation. And just to kind of tie all these together, can anybody tell me what's going on in this picture? Can anybody work out what's happening here? What do we think? Yeah, what do you think? Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So this is taken through a thermal imaging camera. So we can see that the human, the human hand, is very, very bright orange and yellow. That means that it's very, very warm. And the snake, as you can see, it's all the way down here around about 22 degrees. That's incredibly cold. Now this means that the hand here, the mammal, is an endotherm, or what you might call warm-blooded. Whereas the snake is an ectotherm. Now endo and ecto mean, well endo means inside and ecto means outside. So ectotherms get their warmth from the outside environment. Whereas endotherms create their own heat. And in order to create your own heat, you need a lot of energy. Now everything we've said so far about how fantastically well adapted the mammalian mouth is and the teeth and all that kind of stuff means that you can break down food really well and you can create all this energy from the food you're eating and you can be endothermic. And endothermy is the key adaptation which means mammals have become so successful. It means that they can keep warm, they can keep using energy, they have quick release energy unlike reptiles and lizards. And in order to make sure that they keep a hold of that energy, they keep a hold of that heat, here's a little illustration to show my next point. Now, what am I talking about in this slide? What do we think I'm talking about? What do you think? Yeah, we're talking about fur. So the furry pelage that almost all mammals have. But if we look back in the fossil record, we can see evolved extremely early, actually during the Mesozoic period. And so, uh, well, I mean, does, does anybody know who this guy is? Anybody know what kind of species this is? Yeah? It's not a beaver. It's a sea otter. Oh, it's such a sea otter. Yeah, it's a sea otter. So the sea otter is really extraordinary because in one... Now, this is, this is an amazing fact, and please use this on someone's neck. The sea otter, in one square centimetre, one square centimetre of its body, has more hair follicles, has more hair, than on the entire human head. It's an amazing, incredible payload. And unfortunately, it was, it's, it's such an amazing sort of um, uh, fur, this halage, that it was hunted um, an awful lot at the start, well, sort of in the 19th and 20th centuries. But luckily, they're having a great time now, and they're just spending their days living in the sea and making sure that they're sort of blowing air into their halage to make sure that they keep a nice little cushion of air around them to keep them warm so that they can remain endothermic and they still have that amazing energy available on demand. Gary, what do you think? It's an elephant seal. Has anybody seen the elephant seal skeleton that's in the uh, Zoology Museum here? Go see it. It's terrifying. It's so long. It's probably from the edge of here to just about here. You would not want to meet one of these chaps, especially when they're covered in all this blubber. So some animals have decided, well, some mammals have decided that in order to keep a hold of that energy, in order to keep a hold of that endothermic energy, they're going to cover their body, not with fur, not with hair, but they're going to use blubber. Now, blubber is really, really important because it means that you can exist in extremely cold places. So not only in the Arctic circles, but in the water around the Arctic circles, which is obviously incredibly cold. And this also means that once you attain um, a certain amount of energy and you keep a hold of that energy, you can live in very cold places. Because if you live in water, then you become very, very cold very, very quickly the further down you get. And so if you get bigger, that's nice because it means your surface area isn't too big and you're still very, very large. So I'm using some technical language there, but I apologise for that. It's still very early in the morning. Basically, you can get big, which is nice. And if you live in water, that means that you're not under the pressures of gravity, which means you can get absolutely humongous. Like the blue whale. The I'm sorry, I had to say it. You can say it. Blue whale. Uh, which is the largest animal ever to have evolved, which just so happens to be a mammal. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, hey, Nick, some of these dinosaurs got pretty big, which, yes, they did. Here's a little chap. Hello. 
And uh, we have some dinosaurs. So the chap in green, I believe, is uh, Diplodocus. Uh, perhaps the chap in orange, I believe this is maybe Argentinosaurus. I think Brachiosaurus is just above. Um, now this is a reconstruction which um, came out a little while ago and I found it on um, the source of everything trustworthy, Wikipedia. <laughs> and um, now this is still the same picture. Here's our little chap. Now this is a reconstruction of a dinosaur. Now remember how big that blue whale was. Now some people are saying that this guy here, now remember that this is Diplodocus, this is this enormous thing you see in the Natural History Museum in London. Some people are saying that actually this dinosaur here, yeah, he was pretty big. How big, you might ask? Well, let's continue on this diagram and just see uh, how large this, uh, yeah, pretty big. Wow, is it? <laughs> 60 meters long? That's bigger than a blue whale from an animal that probably wasn't endothermic, that couldn't create its own energy. Yes, Amphicolius. Amphicolius. This would be a pretty amazing fossil if we saw the fossil and we saw the evidence for it. So, um, you know, based on this incredible, uh, amazing drawing of what this animal was actually like, should we take a look at the fossil? Should we see what it's like? Okay, that's it. <laughs> um, so, can anybody tell me what part of an animal this is? Muscle. It's not muscle, although muscles are very, very important in what they're attached to it. So, I'm going to give you a clue by just sort of turning my back on you. What do you think? It's the spine, yeah, so it's part of a vertebra. So part of one of the pieces that goes in the spine. It's not even the whole thing. So these dotted lines are where, you know, we think the rest of the... We. I didn't do this work. I did not do this work. Where some scientists think the rest of the vertebrae was. And so from this single fragment of a bone, it's been interpolated, it's been guessed that this animal was as big as that chap drew it. Now this is a little aside, I just want to say to you guys that you're in a science festival right now, it's going to be a great day, but I want you to remain sceptical. Now this is one of my favourite words. This means that when someone tells you something, you question it, okay? This is why I became a scientist, because I never got bored about saying why. There you go! <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't so today I want you to remain sceptical, and every time you're talking to someone, just think, why, why? That's why being a scientist is really neat. So there was a lot of energy that was available to these guys. There was an awful lot of heat that was available to them, and they were able to exist in environments which maybe reptiles weren't able to. So you could be around in the middle of the night, for instance, like that shroom that we saw earlier, you could be nocturnal because you had energy. You didn't need to be warmed by the environment around you, like reptiles, like dinosaurs which are ectothermic, so you can be nocturnal. Now this meant that large brains began evolving very, very early on in the evolution of mammals. Now this is what we call a micro-CT scan. So have any of you ever had an x-ray? Nobody's had an x-ray? Yeah, you guys have, you guys have had x-rays, brilliant. So when you have an x-ray, that means that these things pass through you and you can see the bone inside. Now we can do exactly the same thing with fossils, and we can create 3D images of what these fossils were like. And so we can then fill in various gaps inside structures. So this is filling in the gap where the brain would have been. And so this pink structure at the top, this is what we call an endocarp. So this is where the brain would have sat, and then we can take measurements about how large the brain was. So these things were Mesozoic mammals. These things were around at the time of the dinosaurs. And we actually find that the size of the brain is getting very, very large. Now this is to do with having a lot of energy. So they have energy to put into creating different kinds of tissue. But also these bits at the front, now these are called olfactory bulbs, which is a big word. Olfaction means the sense of smell, okay? So they have a very, very acute sense of smell, which makes sense, because these things were scurrying around in the night time. Now again, this is the second graph I'm going to show you, and, and I apologise again, but all I want you to take away from this is that here, across this, as we go this way, then body mass is getting bigger, so how big you are is getting bigger, and as you go up this way, your brain is getting larger. And so we find, now uh, it is quite early in the morning for this, I apologise, that above this line we find a lot of things like elephants, blue whales, gorillas, dolphins, modern man. But below this line, we find stegosaurus diplodocus, which means that for a certain size of an animal, mammals have much, much larger brains. And larger brains means better senses. Can anybody tell me what this means? Anybody know? 
know this place. He lives in South America, yeah? It's not a stump, it's a bit like a stump. It's called a yapok. Now, yapoks are perfect for talking about sensors because this is filmed with a night camera. Can everybody see this okay? <coughs> this is in the middle of the night, so it's completely pitch dark, and yet it's hunting fish. So it's depending on a lot of different sensors. And with bigger brains, it has bigger sensors. So it's using these amazing feet and hands here, which are incredibly sensitive, have fantastically sensitive fingertips. It also has something on the front of its face that humans don't have on the front of their face. What do most mammals have that humans don't have on the front of their face? I just shaved this morning, so I have the one. Yeah? Whiskers, exactly. And whiskers are really, really important, because obviously if you're down on all fours, and you're saying hello to the world with your face, then to have a tactile sense organ on the front of your face means that you can sense everything that's right in front of you, which is especially important if you're in the middle of the night and you want to either avoid hitting a tree or you want to eat a fish. Now, can anybody tell me what this is? What do you think? So just to show everybody else that isn't sure what this is, we're going to do the reveal. Hello. Uh, this is a kind of mole that lives in North America. And on the front of its face, it has a structure which is more sensitive than the human hand. And this is a tiny structure as well. So even for size, this thing is so small, it's more sensitive than our fingertips. And this is due to the fact that with bigger brains, mammals can have these incredible sensory structures. And there are a few more examples of amazing sensory structures. But this is a blue whale, and only last year, a brand new sensory structure, a brand new sense, was found in between its two jaw bones here. So this organ that sits right here in a blue whale actually tells the whale about water pressure as it's opening its mouth, and it can tell it if it's in trouble, if it's kind of opened its mouth too wide, and it's having a lot of drag under the water. So that's massively important. And again, it's because its brain's so big. I mean, the blue whale is big anyway. I mean, its tongue is the size of an elephant. And yet its brain is larger than a reptile's brain would be if reptiles could grow to this size. And on top of this, we have other sensory structures like the inner ear. Now, early mammals sort of had uh, structures here which weren't terribly coiled. And in modern day mammals, we find this huge coiled structure which again means that it's a larger structure, there's more tissue, and this is down to us having more energy to create these different kinds of tissue. So mammals are also sort of way cool because they have these incredible senses, because of their big brains, because they eat things well, because they can crunch things better than reptiles. This is kind of a summary so far. So what about Mesozoic mammals? At the start of my talk, I kind of asked you guys whether you knew any different kinds of mammals that were around during dinosaurs. And I showed you Megazostrodon, which was on my poster when I was a kid. And we didn't really know very many of right? So maybe there weren't very many mammals. And what I'm going to show you here, now this again is a pretty horrible looking diagram, I'm sorry. But all you need to know is wherever you see these little lines, and whenever you see these dots, that means it's a different kind of animal, okay? So if this was, um, well, we have here placenta, so we could say that this dot here is humans, for instance, and this one here is uh, chimpanzees, and this one here is gorillas. That's the kind of thing that we're looking at here. Now, if I put a line on uh, just here, then everything to the left of this screen, if we just ignore this bit, so we're just looking at these bits here, everything to the left of that line, that's before the Cretaceous mass extinction. So this is the Mesozoic period. So we've already got like, quite a lot of animals that were around during that time, these mammals that actually were living at the time of the dinosaurs, not just these tiny little shrew-like things like Eosotronol and uh, Morganeucodon. But then if we actually reveal the rest of this diagram, we realise that actually there were a lot there were an awful lot of these early mammals, aside from the ones right at the top. So from here onwards, we start seeing things called mammalia forms. These are, this is where mammals really start. This is where they really, really kick off. Well, hopefully, you all know what this is. But I'll, I'll try and find someone I haven't answered for. Someone on this side, maybe? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah, it's a double platypus. Very, very good. I'm sure you knew it as well at the back. Um, so this is the double platypus, and this is a very, very ancient lineage of mammals. Now, why, why are double is so interesting? There's something that perhaps is almost a little reptilian about them. Does anybody know what it is? Yeah, it's a platypus, but what's so amazing about the double platypus? What's so peculiar about it? Yeah. It lays eggs. It lays eggs. That's absolutely perfect. So this still has some remnants 
of its more reptilian ancestors, which is very, very peculiar. So maybe some of the animals during the Mesozoic period were still laying eggs. Maybe they weren't giving birth to live young. Now, although this thing is very, very primitive, I'd just like to uh, draw attention to uh, this bill on the front of its face, which is actually an incredibly well-adapted structure to uh, sensing your environment around you, because it's not tactile, it's not touch. What kind of sense is it? Do you know? It's not echolocation, it's actually a little fancier echolocation. It's not heat, it's even cooler than heat. Anybody? It's electrosensitive. So it can, uh, it can sense the very, very small electrical signals sent out from its prey items. So when it actually dives under the water, it not only closes its eyes, it closes its eyes and its nostrils and its ears all at the same time. So all it's got to go on is just this beak, which can sense electricity, and it just sort of swims like this, kind of butting itself around. Now, we know that there were monotremes, as these kind of mammals are called, during the Mesozoic period. And this fossil was found a little while ago to some excitement in the paleontological community, because this is what we get excited about, right? This is a part of a jaw, and we know looking at the teeth that it was a kind of monotreme, so it was very closely related to duckbill platypuses. But and now that's interesting in its own right, because modern duckbill platypuses don't actually have teeth, but some of the fossils that we found of definitely duckbill platypuses did still have teeth. But looking at this structure here, we found that the shape of the bone that the nerve goes through was very, very large. And the authors said that, well, perhaps this means that because the nerve is so large, this, and we know it's a monotreme, perhaps this thing had a duck bill. So potentially, during the Mesozoic period, this thing could have uh, electro-recepted its environment. Although, what did I tell you before? I told you to be sceptical. I told you to question everything. And I question this. I'm not sure that these chaps actually could electro-recept. But yet, it's still pretty cool that we know that duckbill platypuses and their relatives were around during the time of the dinosaurs. So they weren't just little scratchy shrews. Now this guy, this is Castrocordata. And he's around during the Jurassic period. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to call this chap a shrew. In fact, he was pretty large. We know that it definitely had a paddle-like tail. It definitely had webbed feet. This chap lived in an aquatic environment, and it could live in an aquatic environment because it was insulated, because it had fur, because it got so much energy out of the food that it ate. And so already, when dinosaurs were sort of lumbering around, just happy being Tyrannosaurus rex and uh, Triceratops, and all these chaps just on the ground, not even flying, this chap was in the water, and it was making its living probably eating mollusks. Now, it's important to remember that, you know, mammals have continued on and they've uh, become things like bats and whatnot, but this was during the Jurassic period. And this boy here, Frutifossa, now looking at the structure of the legs, these forelimbs here, there we go, you are still working, we can tell that these things were so sturdy that it was definitely burrowing under the ground. So this is something that potentially might have been living a little bit like a mole, perhaps. And again, this is during the Mesozoic period, so definitely not a shrew. In fact, we see some creatures which were clambering about in the trees at that time, which is that because you're closer to the jaws of dinosaurs. And finally, well, not finally, here's this boy, which is um, a Voltacotherium, um, who had a patagium. Now, patagium is a sort of thin amount of uh, skin that stretches from your forelimbs to your hindlimbs, and this again was a Mesozoic mammal. So not content with just scurrying around the trees, these guys were actually gliding from tree to tree whilst the dinosaurs were about. You know what's cool? When things eat other things. And so this boy is Rapanomamus. Has anybody heard of Rapanomamus? Now that is a crying shame because this boy ate dinosaurs. And the best drawing I could find of this was this here from some dubious magazine. In the fossil record, we have skeletons of Rapanomamus with baby dinosaurs, Psychicosaurs, in its stomach. These guys were definitely hunting dinosaurs during the Mesozoic period. So even this early in their evolutionary history, we still find some pretty ferocious and awesome little creatures. But does that mean that the little shrew-like creatures, things like Eosostradon and Morganucodon, were still just a bit rubbish and a bit scrappy? Because this thing was evolving in the right at the end of the Triassic period. 
Well, maybe it was just a bit like a shrew, but maybe it had a little secret weapon. That's because a paper, some research, that came out just a few years ago found something very peculiar in multi-tuberculate mammals, which were kind of mammals that were around at that period. And if this works, I really hope it works, here we are. This little structure here is potentially something that early mammals, a lot of early mammals, might have had. And this is a little extra tarsal, extra, you know, coming off the tarsal, spur, which is only found today in the duckbill platypus, and it's a poison gland. So potentially, early mammals, as well as being fantastically able to get a lot of energy from their food, as well as being warm-blooded so they can exist at night time, as well as some mesozoic mammals being able to survive underwater and glide from tree to tree, some of the very, very earliest mammals, potentially, perhaps, but remain sceptical, may well have been venomous. And I think that's pretty awesome. And all the sort of variation, all the diversity that we've seen uh, in modern-day mammals, from the whales to the mole rats to the hyraxes to the tenrats, all that diversity is found within placental mammals. So mammals like you and me, that we give to live birth, I don't, but you know, some of you, half of you, give birth to live birth. All those evolved just within the last 65 million years. Now, a paper that came, some research, sorry, excuse me, I'm still on academic mode, some work that came out a little while ago, just over a week ago, showed that our most recent common ancestor, whales, tigers, all these placental mammals, probably looked a lot like something like this. After the dinosaurs died out, those amazing mammals that we saw before were very successful. But one of them, this chap, then gave rise to all the placental mammals that we see around us today. Now, dinosaurs are around for 180 million years or so. And the diversity, the disparity in morphology, shape that we see, to my mind, isn't that exciting as the diversity of shapes and sizes we see in mammals. And it's just within 65 million years from this chap here. Oh, I do have some more, but I feel that I'm going to stop now. And if you have any questions, just come down and have a chat to me. I'll gladly take everything. But thank you so much for listening. It's so good.